Hello Sword People, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I hope your 2021 is getting off to a better start than 2020. To help you with that, as you may already know, I have put together a collection of free courses on joint care, so how to look after your arms and legs, also breathing exercises, meditation, and basic classes in longsword and rapier. So, if that sounds like your sort of thing, toddle along to go.guywindsor.net and you can get your free courses there. Today's show, today's interview is with Rory Miller, who is a self-defense expert and author. He wrote one of the best books on martial arts ever written, which is Meditations on Violence. We'll get into that in the interview. But the... It's normal when running this kind of podcast that you have a bit of sort of pre-interview chat. And as is often the case with people like Rory, the pre-interview chat got into places where I just had to like share it with you. So instead of having a normal introduction where I go on about what a wonderful person the person I'm about to interview is, and then I start a formal interview, um, this kind of kicks off with... He's literally just pouring coffee and talking about roosters and then gets into some stuff that I had absolutely no idea we were going to be talking about. But I thought it was too good not to share. So without further ado, please welcome Rory Miller and (laughs) settle in for some uh, roosters and catamarans. (laughs) You'll see. All right, I'm pouring coffee. And there may be roosters. <laughs> well, that just adds sort of depth and, and interest to the, to the soundtrack. So that's great. Roosters are good. Okay, good. Um, so how have you been? I mean, it's been ages. It, it has been ages. Um, but I had, my big adventure last year was sailing from South Africa to Florida. You are kidding. Yeah, first, first sailing trip was a, was a transatlantic um, so that okay, I'm going to have to put, I'm going to have to put that into the interview. <laughs> that's just, that's just too weird. South, South Africa. Yeah. Well, okay. it's, it's the, the joke is it's weird. Cause you know, you tell the story the same way every time it's like, you know, the, you know, the feeling when you find out that you have really rich friends, cause I, I knew they were doing well. I didn't know that they were doing, having a custom catamaran commissioned in South Africa. Well, and uh, called me up and asked if I was interested in uh, crewing it back yeah. with them. And it's like, how can you get an opportunity like that and say no? You'd be kicking yourself. Yeah, yeah you have to go. Yeah, so flew to South Africa and got on a catamaran. First time on a catamaran. Uh, first time sailing. I, I mean, I went out for an afternoon sailing when I was a kid 30 years ago. Uh, 40 years ago now. Wow. And um, it, it was amazing. So, and then it came back just as the coronavirus hit. So, okay. um, my state's been pretty much locked down, which is not that different than the way I live most of the time. I'm, you know, a hermit up on my mountaintop, uh, but no traveling teaching. It's, I, I think I've taught three seminars this year. Yeah. I haven't done any, apart from online. Yeah. I miss the travel. Oh, God. Me too. You know, I was teaching a, at an event in Portugal 
uh, day before yesterday. But of course, I was just in my study for two hours instead of actually being in Portugal, in Portugal, you know, interacting with Portuguese people and drinking Portuguese wine. I was just in my study. Yeah, it wasn't the same at all. That's would lose. So, where are you in the world now? Me, I live in I live in Ipswich, in the UK. Because last time I saw you, I think you were in Finland and you were thinking about moving, but I didn't know if you'd actually done it yet. I don't pay attention. When when we yeah when we met in uh, Holland or Belgium Belgium, Belgium sorry Belgium. when we met in yeah. Belgium, I was still living in Finland, but by the time we had lunch in Seattle, I'd been moved to England for a year or two. Okay, and I probably asked that at the time and just forgot it. That, do, I do, do the same. It's like you know, because honestly, do you actually care where I live? Not unless you're visiting. It's yeah, it's. Not it's not a huge effect on my life, but exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, it's funny because I normally start these interviews with the question like, "Where where are you?" and then you just threw it at me. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, "Hang well, on, who's interviewing here? Come on, Roy, behave." Do you realize how many times in these interviews I've attempted to turn into a counter interview just to practice? Well, Maybe. you're you're perfectly welcome to do so. It um, is. And you, no, I'll be good. I'll be good. It's hard not to practice. Indeed. No, that's, that's exactly it. It's hard not to practice. Yes. Uh, once, once you really sort of grok the whole thing. Yeah. It's good you know, And when you look at um, it right and you're thinking right, everything is practice. It's like, you know, the, every way you move is the way you move. It's, um, I was in taking a walk with one, one of my hosts in Scotland and I, I did not even realize I was doing it because I'm walking on the handrail. I'm doing the little um, – you, you can hear me banging on the table now. But the, the little strike you do with the, the showtie strike that you do with a little bone at the end of your wrist, I'm doing that on the handrails as we walk. And he goes, he goes if, I'm, if I'm doing the math in my head right, you're getting about 6,000 reps a day and you don't even notice it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like just walking upstairs. Yeah. You know, you, or, or getting through a door. Mm-hmm. Right? One of my favorites is, you know, if you open a door, you have to turn the handle, you have to move the door, you have to get around the door, you have to close the door. Yeah. And if you do the whole thing properly, there's no resistance from the door. And you don't bang your face on the door and you don't touch the door with your foot and whatever. And it is just so like some of the um, sort of getting control of the weapon, moving around the back and going for the neck or whatever. The, the footwork's the same. A lot of what you're doing with your hands is the same. And you get that same kind of real-world feedback because the door doesn't know that it's supposed to be cooperative. Yeah, and we do we do the same. It's one of the reasons I open doors for people is not necessarily that I'm polite. But if you open the door correctly, you get a 360-degree scan and no one notices you're doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, actually, you know, there are a few people in the world um, who – if we're in a restaurant, I am perfectly happy for them to take the chair facing the door or looking yeah. out into the room. And I will quite happily sit with my back to the room because I know that that person is much better at checking out the environment than I am. And you are one of those people, Rory. Oh, cool. And I almost never sit in that chair because if I was going to be a bad guy, that's the person I'd shoot first, just automatically. <laughs> I noticed that when we were in that restaurant in, um, in Seattle – Eating Egyptian food, I believe. No, not Egyptian. It was Ethiopian food, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was really good. Um, but the, um, 
yeah, you, you were not sat in the paranoid place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, if, if you're, if you're with someone you trust, you don't have to, cause they'll tell you everything that's going on. But even if you're worth a stranger, if there's something going on, their face will change. You'll know, you don't need to see everything yourself. And, and I, I, I try to really push this with the tactical jerks is anything that you think that you're doing because it's tactical if you can do it and be invisible it's 10 times better it, sure. yeah I, I don't want you know if, if i'm really paranoid it's my wife <laughs> we went back to an environment um that the the running joke had been i can't go back there until more people have died um right but after 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 30 years we did go back and uh my wife was um I did not. She said, I did not like your personality change. I do not like the person you are when you're there. And I didn't notice it until I just habitually, I hadn't done this for years, threw my sunglasses on the table upside down so I could use them for a mirror to see what was behind me. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, that's not the kind of place you really want to spend much time if you can avoid it. No, and it was, you know, it was fun at the time, but I was a, you know, 22 year old. Um, well, I was a 22 year old. Right. Yes. Yeah. The, the idiot part can just be left out. It's understood. Yeah. Uh, um, well, um, you brought up your wife and the first thing I ever heard about your wife was in the back of Meditations on Violence. Um, she says that it's easy to understand Rory if you work from the assumption that he was raised by coyotes. Yes. Now, I think I might have a very slight inkling as to what she's talking about, but um, would you care to? Expand on that a bit. I, I guess it's um the I was raised in the desert in eastern Oregon. It's not a it's not a Gobi desert. It's it's like a cowboy desert with the tumbleweeds and the sagebrush. And right. it was the seventies, so everyone knew the world was going to end any any minute. And my parents bought into that, and so they got eighty acres, and we spent the time basically homesteading, you know, build our house I had contractors work on a lot of it, but build our house, um, no running water, no electricity, grew our food, hunted. Um, so that the really formative, you know, early adolescent years, I was almost completely alone. Uh, ah. we, we did have a school, we went to school, but I, I was not peopling. Well, I was not, I was barely, um, I was pretty feral. Let's put it that way. And I think I learned more. There's one of the stories I told her, um, coyotes were a problem in the sense that they would, uh, they kill baby calves and they would, they would kill, um, sheep. And so every so often the local ranchers would get together and they'd hire someone with a helicopter and someone else with rifle and the helicopter would go, um, shoot the coyotes. And I was spending a lot of time, just a lot of that adolescent energy. So I would, I would go out at night and I would just run through the desert in the moonlight. I would spend hours at night just trying to burn off energy. And I would listen. And if you listened, you'd hear the, uh, the high-pitched yipping and howling from the coyotes and then deeper pitched. And it turned out that the, um, what appeared to be going on was that the, the male coyotes we're leading the helicopters away from the dens. Oh, wow. So almost everyone they killed was a male and, uh, and, and they were st deliberately staying away from their families to keep them safe. Uh, 
And it was like that, I think, taught me more about parenting and what a man's job is than anything I ever learned from humans up to that point. So I told her that story and she started saying that she, it's easier to understand me if you figure out that I was raised by the coyotes. I wasn't raised by people. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's sort of the tragedy of, of being a bloke in a kind of standard, you know, gender normative culture is, you know, I know perfectly well that if something bad happens at my house, it's my job to slow things down so my wife can get the kids out the back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of baked in somehow. Well, until we had 7 billion people, it, it made sense. Men, men are expendable right. genetically. Women, women are yeah. far less expendable. Um, so. Yeah. So, okay. We, we seem to have accidentally started the interview without me actually like doing the usual intro and stuff, but that's fine. I'll add that in later. Um, <laughs> and, and, and from, you mentioned your, your sailing trip, and that's not something I was expecting to talk to you about today, but I can't resist. So, so you've never sailed before, and you're on a catamaran going from South Africa to the States. Yeah, and Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. That, that must have been sort of a very immersive learning experience. It was amazing because it was it was brand new to me i had no clue what i was doing it's like i still don't know the names of all the ropes and parts it was a main voyage so the number of things that broke down was shocking um we, we ended yeah, up it's the shakedown voyage right oh yeah we ended up spending a week in saint helena hoping a part would come in before we gave up and just went without it um so uh and saint helena is is one of the most remote places in the world it is amazing. It's this little British colony in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, just a beautiful, tiny, the most, uh, the most diverse uh, ecosystems I've ever seen on a place that small. Uh, sailing itself, I mean, there were colors of blue that I had, you know, had never imagined. The phosphorescence. I'd seen phosphorescence in the wake in the Caribbean before, but never the, the little flashes of sparkles. Um, I'd not seen those before. I'd never seen waves crash and have the outline look like a, a glowing green foam horse. It was, it was epic and magical. It, um, one, of, one of the things I'm, I'm using or teaching now is an exercise. Cause I, I realized I used to do it. There's a lot of things that you did and then you, you, you never realize you're doing them because they're so natural. But one of the things within any situational awareness class, I'll tell you to um, set a baseline and look for any deviations from the baseline, but they almost never tell you how to set the baseline. And so one of the first things, you know, night watch is sitting there and just really, really listening and realizing that every single sound means something. And as you know, and, and I would try to figure out what does this sound mean? Um, <clears throat> And that that tunes you into what's going on, and and we forget that that everything means something. Doesn't mean it's important, but any anything that touches your senses came from something, and that so that was incredible. And yeah, we had some rough water. We set a speed record for that uh, style of catamaran. It was it was just a super great trip. How many were you on the boat? Three. 
Okay. So I guess you knew each other really well by the end. Uh, by the end of it, we knew each other pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I, you, so you sailed to Fort Lauderdale and then made your way home to um, somewhere in Oregon. Is that correct? Um, I say Oregon because no one's, everyone's, or several people have heard of Portland, Oregon, but no one's heard of the little town I live in. So I'm 25 miles from Portland, but I'm actually in Washington okay. State. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, um, I have a friend similarly in a kind of liminal space between Oregon and Washington, yeah. closer to Portland, but still in still in Washington. Um, so I understand you live sort of out in the country with goats. Yeah, if, if this was a video interview, I would I would take the the computer outside now and show you the view because it's all green trees. The sun's coming out. Um, we're, we're on a slope facing South and it's, it's just really gorgeous right now. We have a very heavy frost on the deck. Yeah. That's beautiful. So you chose the place cause it's beautiful and convenient or what, what I, brought you there? I chose the place. Um, the big killer at the time I, I was working in the jail, um, and it was, you know, urban, it was, um, Anyway, I wanted a place where I could go and not think about that. And the, the thing that actually sold us on this was the deck, because this is the perfect uh, cigar and whiskey deck. <laughs> do you know, I actually have an exercise called Whiskey and Cigars. <laughs> an outdoor what exercise. You do is it, yeah, why not? You sit, you sit on the floor and your legs are up and you pretend you're in a leather armchair with uh -huh. a whiskey in one hand and a cigar in the other. And of course, keeping your legs up, resting on an imaginary silken footstool. You reach behind you for more whiskey and you reach behind you for more cigars. And you just kind of, leading a class through this, you kind of, you can just relax into it. Once you know the trick of it, you relax into it and it's not actually very strenuous. But until you know the trick of it, it's really hard. So you get to kind of sit there and just have this relaxed, amusing conversation, mostly with yourself. And the class is kind of like sweating and squealing and <laughs> it's super fun. But yes, whiskey and cigars are... Um, yeah, they're so important. They're baked into my very training curriculum. Yeah, nice static V up. Exactly, uh, and of course there are variations where you like tie an imaginary rope around your legs and you throw it over a pulley to pull your legs up higher, and mm -hmm. yeah, it's super fun because like visualization is everything, right? Yeah, visualization. Weirdly, I I don't know if we want to go down this rabbit hole. I can't visualize the way I used to. Okay. Um. The uh. Because I used to practice the visualization, you know, trying to trying to get the the look on the guy's face, you know, the the scars, the smell. I would try to get every single detail. Um, and now, when I visualize a problem, it just comes to me as vectors. It, it's a okay. it's very abstract, but there's no. It's it just energy moving in directions, and that's that's what I'm doing for visualization now. I don't know exactly when it changed, because um, I used to heavily into into visual, uh, visualization and, and guided meditation and it just okay so so what we you were visualizing what an assailant in what you were visualizing an assailant or usually or, or you know problem solving you know if this happened what would i do so i'd try to imagine the situation as accurately as possible but now it's just energy and vectors okay well yeah that is that's more generally applicable I think it's just it's just weird. Uh, huh. Okay. 
maybe maybe you just got to a certain point where the specifics don't really matter anymore. I, I think that's that is part of it because it's a lot of specifics don't. I mean, um, the, the first the first several times, you know, the, the smell and the sounds and the and the the details are part of the the things that build up fear. And once you get a little bit more past that, they become less relevant. You realize the fear is actually the shiny thing coming at your stomach. I don't give a shit if the guy has rotten teeth or not. Right. Um, okay. So you're in Oregon on this lovely farm and you started out in the wilds being raised by coyotes. So what happened in between? How did you get from one to the other? It's, I, I heard Roseville Karate then. I'm sure that's not what you said. How did, how did I get from from where from to here? From one to the other. Yeah, hey. from from coyotes in the wilderness to oh. living in Oregon. And I know, I know you have a background in corrections and I, that I sort of thing, but... I went to college. Um, okay. So I, I graduated when I was 16. I turned 17 that summer and started college. I thought I was going to be either a spy or a marine biologist, um, which is kind of typical for a 17-year-old. Yep. Uh, stayed in college as long as I could afford it. And then when I couldn't, I would drop out and go get a job for a year, however long it took to get enough money to go back. Um, during that time, I joined the National Guard. Uh, I met my wife. We're still together after, let's see, 86, 20, 20, 34 years. Um, or 40, she's a very patient woman, sir. She is, yeah, that is, that is the sterling quality of the building, the ability to put up with us. Um, and I'm, I'm just assuming that you chose as wisely as I did. So she has the same story. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm that, only at 14, 14 years and counting, but yes, there's yeah. no, no plans to change. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the corrections thing was, uh, during the Kuwaiti war, I was in the National Guard. We were a desert-trained anti-tank unit. I was a medic. Um, and Cammie and I decided to get married because if anything bad happened to me, there would be no benefits. Um, right. And then we didn't get activated. The, the first airstrike wiped out all his tanks, which is what we specialized in killing. And suddenly it's like, oh, my God, I'm married. I need a real job. And so the corrections was the first job that came through. Okay. Yeah. And so you went and trained as a prison guard or? I, I was like, I got, I got hired as a corrections deputy. So in, in our system, we have a difference between jail and prison. So jail would, would be what you call remand. Um, so we get everyone fresh off the streets right after they're booked. And that, that's where the actual, most of the fighting experience comes in is, is right after the arrest. Cause they're pissed off. They're angry. They still have drugs in their system if they do. They're still drunk if they do. They're angry at the police, but the police had guns. And so the first person in uniform they're going to see when the handcuffs come off are two unarmed corrections deputies. And that, that's why so much experience concentrates in booking. Uh, the, however, right. however big your city is, um, the two guys working booking have about as much experience in in hand-to-hand force instance as your entire patrol district combined. Wow. Yeah. So I've, I've sat in 
teaching one class with a friend and we two were corrections and we were teaching enforcement team and they had 120 years of experience between them and each of us alone had more um, uses of force than all of them combined. Wow. Okay. So that's that's where you picked up your sort of emphasis on sort of unarmed self-defense against various yeah. attacks. Well, that's, that's okay. where I got the perspective. Yeah. Right. Okay. But you, I know you've also trained martial arts. Yes. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're um, – I mean, you're known as like the self-defense guy. I don't think that's a fair characterization, but that's what everybody who I've met and mentioned you to, that's how they kind of pigeonhole you in their heads. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I'd actually like to do with this interview is is broaden out that pigeonhole by several orders of magnitude. Um, but so you, you were working as a corrections officer, training martial arts on the side? Well, I, I trained... Um... As soon as I got to college, it, our, where I lived was too small. There were no martial arts within 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as soon as I got to college, and it, it wasn't – I needed to get my temper under control, and I'd heard that that was a great way to do it. And, um, again, this was just at the start of the 80s, so martial arts were coming up as the way to become a complete human being. So I signed up. I didn't even know that there was much of a difference between the different types of martial arts. And I and I happened to look into judo, and the the coaches at the Oregon State team at the time were um, a former West German uh, Olympic team member and a former uh, junior national champion in the U.S. So I lucked out into two extraordinary coaches. That and is pretty damn lucky. It, it was incredibly lucky. I because I probably would have become addicted to anything I started in, um, like most people. And, but they, they set a bar for what was acceptable instruction. And it was, it was, um, the thing that I loved about judo, it is just physics and physical conditioning. There, there's no mysteries. There's no bullshit. There's no way to say that you're good. You're going to be on the mat and you're going to prove it every day. Um, and I love that. The, uh, um, I, I tried every other martial art I could find at the time, and I played with all of them. I dabbled, um, but judo was my first love. And uh, and like a lot of obsessive martial artists that get hooked, because 16, 17 seems to be the sweet spot for people getting addicted to martial arts. Um, I, I was obsessive. I did it all. It was my biggest hobby. I was every, I, there was one class I had to take three times because the, they, the idiots kept scheduling at the same time as the judo. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's easy to say which one we went out. Yeah. So I, I was, so I was going to, you know, dropping into all the judo classes in the P department in the morning and then working out with the, the club and the team at night and then taking every other martial art at the same time I could. Um, so I wound up judo and fencing in college. Um, and then when we moved up to Portland, cause you know, looking for a job and Cammy's dad was really sick. I, I was looking for another judo club and I stumbled into a jujitsu club, which was again, extraordinary. I still think that, that Dave is probably the best fighter pound for pound I've ever met. And I've met some really good ones and he was, um, a really, I want to say he was a really good teacher, but it turns out he was only a really good teacher for me. 
uh, one of my friends who who came up through the system, you know, with with me at one point, I go, he's the best teacher. I go, no, he's a terrible teacher. You're the only one that understands a thing he's saying. <laughs> okay, you you like to give an example of that? As... I don't know if I can because it all made perfect sense to me. All right, but sure. well, I, yeah, yeah, you you see that. You know, I, I find I sometimes find it completely baffling that some instructors have any students, uh, but the students clearly seem to be getting what they're looking for out of someone who, to me, is speaking gibberish. Yeah, and and Dave wasn't he wasn't speaking gibberish. He was he was just fun, and I think I think probably people had he was having so much fun that people had a hard time taking him seriously. It's my best guess. Ah, uh, okay. It, it was he he was like a. A kitten playing with a ball of string every day, and someday you were the ball of string, and occasionally you got to beat the kitten too. Okay, so you were doing sort of classical jujitsu locks and throws and grappling and stuff. Yes, yeah, I we, imagine it'd be a bit difficult to translate that to corrections because you're not supposed to injure the inmates. Um, yeah, especially the classical stuff doesn't have a lot of submissions. It's, I mean, the whole point. Right. Uh, one of our one of our sayings was a samurai do not roll around on the floor like children, but it actually comes from an environment where if you if you are that focused on one person, you're going to get stabbed in the back because it was battlefield systems are very different than dueling systems. Um, so for for emergencies, it was excellent. For handcuffing, it sucked, and I wound up uh, studying small circle jujitsu, which I still think is the best thing I found for handcuffing. Um, there's small joint specialists. And if, if you want to make okay. a, a big guy voluntarily put his hand, well, not voluntarily is the wrong word, but put his hands behind his back with minimal injury, that w- that's the best thing I've found. Small circle jiu-jitsu. I've not come across it. What's it, um, what's it about? Wally J was a, was a judo coach. He's one of those guys like Customato who's never championed himself. He trained a shit ton of champions. And um, if you take a kumikata grip, you take a regular grip on a judo gi, um, one of the things he discovered was, you know, it's it, a lot of the things you want to do. You want to get the guy up on his toes. That's where his balance is weakest. And it turns out instead of trying to lift or use any of the big muscle groups, if you just curl your little finger towards yourself, um, you can make bigger people come up on their toes. And he started working and their, their symbol. And if you think about a grip on a Japanese sword, it's all that little finger. Yep. Right. It's that, that ringing action. So he started using that as as his um, uh, little symbol idea. I don't know exactly who he was the first person I've ever seen that actually laid out a list of principles. A lot of people talk about principles-based teaching, be asking what their principles are. They have no clue. They're just saying the word. <laughs> yes. Um, and he had this pain makes believers. When he originally started small circle, he didn't want to, he didn't want a system. he, um, in, in classical jujitsu, you can see this, there are no finger locks at this era because that one, or in the system, because that one comes from a place where they were wearing gauntlets. So no finger locks. And then you get to this system is like, it has a lot of finger locks because it was a rest and control after the, the, uh, warring states period and the, or age of the country war. And, um, and then the, you lose them again when it gets into sport because, you know, no matter how good you are, if you got two 200 pound guys grabbing fingers, something's going to break. So um, he wanted to basically make a, a package that you could put into any martial art that you wanted and bring back the finger locks from your history. 
but it got so popular that people kind of insisted on him making a system. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. I had to look into that. Oh, Wally, Wally J. He was just, he was also just this really super fun person. So. Okay. So small circle jujitsu. I'm making a note. I shall, I shall dig it out. The next time I see you, I shall, I shall make you dance on your toes there with a judiciously applied finger lock. Well, it's, have we done the the um, the lock flow drill and and the the finger dancing? I don't think we've done those. No. Yeah, because no, I've not done those with you. Yeah, because it's not a primary self defense thing, so I tend not to do it at the, the self defense based seminars. It's it's more for professionals. But you can get actually really good at improvising locks under pressure very quickly if you play the right games. Sure. Okay. Well, that, that, I take that as a promise. Next time we meet, we shall have a. Absolutely. Show me that stuff. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, you've written a lot about, the, and you, you brought this up earlier, the difference between um, what actually happens when you're applying things and what happens within a martial art. And your book, Meditations on Violence, is really all about how a martial art is adaptive for a particular context, and it may work in that context if you train it for that context, but mm -hmm. it's not going to work somewhere else. Okay? So I'm... Um, and you have a lot of experience of martial arts done in the dojo and actually dealing with seriously non-compliant people. Mm -hmm. So um, sparring is the closest we get in many martial arts to a, non, a truly non-compliant opponent. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, no, I've, I've read pretty much everything you've written on this, but... I'm guessing the listeners probably haven't read all of it. So would you like to just go into the role of sparring in martial arts and how it relates to the real world? Okay. So I'm going to try to remember how you said that people peg me as a self-defense guy, not the martial arts guy. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit into this a little bit. Um, the only reason why this is even a question is because people want their martial arts to also be combat and fighting and self-defense and dueling. They want it to be all of these things. Um, if you're happy doing your martial art because it's fun, that should be reason enough. It's okay. And within that context, um, I think sparring is the most valuable part of martial arts because it's the most fun. Uh, when you're when you're playing games, you ingrain movement patterns. You ingrain stuff way better than you'll ever ingrain it by trying to memorize it or figure out or take it too seriously. Um, having having fun is essential to learning. Sparring is essential to learning. Sparring is essential to playing. Uh, where it gets weird is where people try to extrapolate that to other things that are not as related as they want them to be. So uh, one analogy I've been using lately is is when you take high end sparring, you take MMA or whatever, uh, think of that as Formula One racing or rally racing. Self-defense is a lot more like four wheeling with a shitty car with engine trouble. It's okay. Yeah, the skills we, we want the skills to be the same, but they don't necessarily cross over. And one of those if you're if you're in the kind of shape that a professional fighter is in, what are the odds you're going to be anyone's going to try to abduct you to, for a for a rape? It just, mm. it's right. It's a different problem applied to different people. So, um, I love sparring. It is fun. 
but throwing it into the sword world, which is way more your world than mine. And by the way, my wife is reading your book right now, the one on on uh, sword combat for writers. Oh, right. And so she, she wanted me to tell you it is fucking amazing. So her oh, work. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so, so like with sword, battlefield sword is different than dueling sword. Sure. Right. It, it must be. There's, there's no place in the world. Um, and so that's also different than sword fighting for fun. And this is, this is something that, again, I was, she, she left the book out. So I was reading a passage out of it. Um, but in your book, you point out that there are the two camps. One that say that sparring is super important. The other saying that sparring, unless they're dead bodies at the end, it's not real. You don't know if you're learning anything. And, and so to that extent, yeah, the, the, even for dueling, sparring and dueling are super close related. Physical skills are the same. Um, uh, you've read Aldenati's book. Yeah, of course. Okay. And his, and his thing where he's getting in that duel, his description of the, you know, he doesn't call it adrenaline, but his description of that feeling that, oh my God, I've never done this for real. He's probably the best in the world. He was certainly the best in the world. And, and it, well, I don't know if he was in the talks. That was fairly early in his career, but, um, I don't but know. Yeah. He was, he was yeah. Olympic champion several times over and yeah. Um, yeah. And but this, he, 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 got, he bled first. Right. So, so it's that doubt, right? Um, sure. and, and that's the thing. But the skills were, ex, were almost exactly the same, but he had to get over that mental thing. And so, right. so dueling and sparring, super close. Um, but the one thing that, that's missing from sparring, and one of the reasons why I actually, and I'm probably the only one in the world that likes the right-of-way rule, is because the right-of-way rule is there to force you to act like the fear is there. What is the right away rule? Um, that you cannot counterattack someone until you after you've defended if they if they initiate the attack. Oh the sorry, right of way. Yeah, yeah, like in like in foil. Sorry, I, I misheard yeah. you. Thanks yeah. for the lovely internet. Yeah, so so I, I consider that to be a, a, a and one of my one of my tests for a, a fencing instructor is if they can't explain why the right of way rule makes it more realistic not less realistic, then they don't understand what's going on. Right. It's because you only get one double kill in real life. Right. Yeah. Um, and and in, in, in sports FA, you know, if you one hit up and you know you can go for two, you can go for certain double hits, but it's risky to go for a, a, a single hit, then the sensible thing to do is just go for doubles until you've got the required number of hits. And as what, you know, yeah. So you win five four, but that's nine bleeding wounds. Yeah, and uh, and you've read Maya's books, right? Yeah, yeah, liar, cheat, and the thief, and the hustler, and that's what it's all about. It's that was because I, you know, between fencing and Japanese systems, um, she had to beat out of me the idea that a that a double kill was okay. It's oh really? Yeah, because it, it's one of those. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Don't do it blades. Yeah, as long as, long as I as long as I touched her first, I was not caring if she touched me. She goes, "Yeah, you can't oh. can't get away with that. You have to get in with enough skill and enough of an edge to also get out." And that that's so freaking obvious. It's one thing we would never we never plan a tactical mission without a, an exfiltration plan without a way to get out. We would never consider that. It'd be stupid. But I was doing it in in sword sparring all the time. Wow. Yeah. 
that, that, that makes a certain kind of sense because, you know, it's like mountaineering. There is no successful ascent without a successful descent, but everyone focuses on getting to the top of the hill. Yeah. It's, and it, it's not enough. It's more important not to get cut than it is to cut the other person. Yeah. And the only reason you're cutting the other person in the first place is to stop them trying to cut you. Yeah. And well, and especially in a world where an infection could kill you, you have to, you have to get out as much as possible unscathed. And this, and going back to the other thing, this is this is the thing where where the sparring in self defense. And I'm I'm not saying don't spar when you're thinking self defense, but don't take the assumptions or the expectations because if we're sparring, you're going to be in front of me. We've agreed what to do, or what's allowed and what isn't. We'll have equivalent weapons. There might be weight classes, but um but we have all these variables under control. Um, when it's self-defense, generally you, you aren't having your best day. You're, you're injured or you're weak for some reason, you're distracted. Um, there's the other guy has no interest in being, um, fair. Uh, you, you mentioned full resistance and sparring is one place where we work against full resistance. And that's one of the things I always glitch on because generally in a, in an attack, it, the person's not resisting, they're assaulting. And sure. the difference between someone trying to stop you for, from throwing them or locking them and hitting them and someone who doesn't give a shit because they're pretty certain if they hit you hard enough or fast enough, you won't be able to do anything is, is a, is a huge qualitative difference that most people have never experienced. And one of the things within training, anything that's intense feels more real. Sparring at whatever level you do, it is usually the most intense thing in your art. Um, so you assume it's more real. And when you get the notch beyond that, it's it's actually not that closely related. So sparring is fun. It's important. Um, but the crossover and the crossover to fighting, you know, if you want to get in bar balls, yeah, that's there. Um, but for self-defense... You know, you, you get the someone who outweighs you. Uh, one of my friends, she's a woman, and her thing is my average opponent is twice my size, three times my strength, and he gets the first move from behind when I'm not ready. Okay. So how? So what is the best tool for for training that? Sparring clearly not, but well, and, and sparring's not bad and it's fun, but probably the most effective is scenario training. Okay. Um, you you set it up. And scenario training has to be done super carefully. It has to be done very well or not at all. Um, but they have to have enough clues to see it coming if that's what the bad guy would do, you know, if there's an interview so that they can handle it at that stage. Um, the, the bad guy has to be armored to the point that you can unload all the way because otherwise you're developing a habit of not unloading. Um, and you get to work those, those things from surprise and being stunned and getting hit. So I, I think that's the closest, but even that, and, and this is one of those, um, everyone wants an answer. They want, you know, this is the best way, but it's a lot like having kids. I don't care how many classes you took or how many books you read, you are not ready for having kids the first time. <laughs> that is so true. And yeah, and it's same, you know, no matter how hard you trained or how much your first time you get, you get ambushed, you get assaulted, you get hit over the back of the head, it's different. And, and I think a lot of us, we just have to accept, but also accept that we're animals. We're good at this. Our ancestors have survived way worse shit. Um, and just because there's no way to train for it exactly doesn't mean there's no way to survive it. Cause we were, we were surviving stuff like this for 
tens of thousands of years before training was even invented. Yeah, that's a fair point. And we have these sort of inbuilt biological responses to things that allow us to be much stronger than usual and faster than usual. And, you know, we can run much, much longer and much faster when we're totally terrified. Yeah. Um, but you're also more clumsy when you're terrified. So the part in the in the yeah. horror movies where the woman's running away and then she trips and falls, that is really realistic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, actually, one, one training thing I remember on this um, knife course I was on, we did a, a, an exercise where you'd look at a point on the floor and spin round and round and round and round, round till you got really dizzy. Yeah. And then work from there. Yeah, dizziness right? so, so you replicate a concussion. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of staggering about and it's difficult and you still have to deal with the stuff that's coming at you when like your body isn't working properly. And yeah. Um, so you're... Most most of the listeners are sword people, so they are, and you have mentioned fencing and swords and what have you. So, um, do you have any actual sword practice currently? Yeah, currently, uh, when the weather's nice, my wife and I go on the deck and grab a couple of cold steel wasters and smack at each other. <laughs> That's a way to stay married for thirty odd years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, she's still pretty frisky. Okay, um, and. So now your, your principles based instruction is a mm-hmm. fascinating book, basically about what you said earlier that a lot of people who say they're talk, teaching principles can't actually like explicitly describe the principles they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but what would you say the primary differences would be between teaching self-defense and maybe teaching a historical martial art? Um, the, the primary difference is when you're teaching self-defense, you're teaching a student. Um, when you're teaching a historical martial art or any martial art, you're teaching subject matter. And okay. so it, it's one of those, when I'm teaching jujitsu, there's this information that's been handed down for a very long time. It has to be handed down the same way because that's what defines the art. Um, when I'm teaching self-defense, it's like every student's going to be targeted for different things. They have different resources that they bring to the table. And I have to do everything in my power to maximize their resources and get them to fit the situations that they're likely to face. Um, okay. Now, I would sort of agree for the first while, but then there comes a point where the student basically knows the uh, in, teaching historical martial art mm-hmm. and the student basically knows the material mm-hmm. and understands where it comes from and knows that anything they do differently is sort of departing from the text mm-hmm. but still once they get to a, a certain not terribly advanced level it's necessary to train them to fight because what we're really trying to do is recreate duelists it's it's who are it's, never actually going to duel but again it's it's within the venue uh, another or another way to phrase it is um, teaching a martial art, I'm teaching people to fight and win. Teaching self-defense, I'm teaching people to cheat and survive. Okay, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It, um, now, there's okay. Meditations on Violence is one of my absolute favorite books, and oh, cool. without without question, if there are if there are, if I have a top ten books every martial artist should read it is in the top five of that top 10 wow. right it is at, well it's because what are you, you, other you four? 
Uh, is that if you're trying to turn it around on me? No, 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 no. That's my question. Funnily enough, actually, we have a mutual friend called Kaya Sadowski, and her book, Fear is the Mind yeah. Killer, would certainly be in the top 10 as well. She's she's on my list too. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, and also, actually, listeners to the podcast, she's episode five of this podcast. Um, so, yes, you can, you can go listen to that if you're interested, yeah. uh, as you should be. So, um, Or I could just okay. call her. All right. <laughs> no, I was I was talking to the listeners, not to you. I know, I know oh, you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you and Kai go go way back. So, okay. In meditations on violence, at the beginning of the bibliography, you write first off, read a damn book. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's actually fairly unusual advice from someone teaching a super practical. Um, Why would that be unusual advice? It's it's ah uh, because. Well, you can't learn martial arts from reading a book, can you? Really? But you can't. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you should not learn. I, I do believe. I, I know. I know. I'm, I'm teaching. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, I teach martial arts from books that I've read. I mean, you know, like, I'm the living in. in I know. I, I'm, I'm disturbed by the number of people that think that they can learn by watching videos. And I, I've come to the conclusion that when someone says, I'm a visual learner, what they're really saying is, I'm too lazy to work out. Um, <laughs> okay. It's, but there, but there is some stuff that's kinesthetic. You have to feel it to really get it. Absolutely. Um, and also, but for representing movement, mm-hmm. it's easier to teach a movement through video. I mean, I have books and I've written books and I've produced online courses. And for producing, for reproducing a movement, is much easier for a student to reproduce it from seeing the video than from reading the book. Yeah, it's really hard to to describe movement in in just words. Uh, Absolutely true. The, uh, but, but reading, it's one of those that you should never stop learning. That I mean, just full stop. You should never stop learning. And reading is one of the most information-dense ways we can get there. And most, most of what, for, for self-defense in particular, by the time it goes physical, you're so far behind the eight ball that your, your odds are pretty low. Um, we did the design of crime in, uh, in Belgium. Yes, we did. Yeah. And once, I mean, how many people have anything that can survive the crimes that a bunch of, and none of you were actual professional criminals doing this forever. This is the first time. Hmm, how would I take somebody out? And how many people had a solution for the crimes that, that you came up with? Yeah. I mean, well, well I, I played the victim for, for one group and I was a little old lady and they knocked on my door and I opened the door and that was that. Yeah, <laughs> it was really, really nasty. Right. And, and so this is so that most of the stuff that actually is going to help you is going to come in in being able to understand how criminals think to being able to recognize a setup before it happens. Sure. And you'll you can learn a lot of that by reading and listening to podcasts and talking to people. And one of the ones that's on my list is uh, is a book called Inside the Criminal Mind. And the author, Samenow is there are a whole bunch of psychologists that work in prisons um, and criminals practice manipulating them. They brag about this. They have contests about it. Samenow was one of the only ones I've ever known that realized he was being played. And, okay. and that made him think about a lot of stuff and do a lot of research in ways, but he's, he's the best description of how high end criminals think. Um, and it's so 
um, one of the reasons why I suggest that is there are a bunch of books written by criminals and you have to be careful because uh, take uh, uh, Soledad Brother or George Jackson's Prison Letters by George Jackson. Um, he was a manipulative narcissist and, and a full-blown antisocial personality disorder. But unless you realize that he wrote those to manipulate you, he, he, he wrote his books to manipulate you, the reader, you are the target. Um, it's really easy to, to fall for his bullshit. Um, mm. so, so that, that reading can really help you understand when you're being played. Interesting. Um, so why did you write meditations on violence? I think we've talked about this, right? Um, yeah. 2002. Well, nobody got to listen because it was just the okay. business. So. All right. So 2002 was a really – how much bad language can I use? Because it was a really fucked up year. You can say whatever the fuck you want, mate. Um, okay, cool. So we had – let's see. There was a – we delivered a baby in, in reception that was addicted to crack and heroin. We uh, I, My first body recovery was search and rescue. Friend committed suicide. Um, and for the first time, things weren't settling. It's – I always been really psychologically robust. I never took the fights home. You know, there are horrible, horrible things we saw. Um, and I, they never affected me, but for the first time, this stuff was not, Oh, I shot somebody that also had an issue. So this stuff was not getting out of my head. It was staying there for the first time in my life. And I got tired of thinking about it internally. So I started writing it down and I just kind of vomited out all the stuff in my head. Because one of the other things there is that martial arts had always been the place I would go to get you know my attitude adjustment. I go there, I, you know, get slammed into the floor, get punched a lot, and I'd be happy and all my. <laughs> yeah. And this yeah, one, every, every martial artist understands what you just said, and every non-martial artist would be going, "Yo, what?" Yeah, and it's so I, I was getting this, but it wasn't. I, I for the first time I was looking at, at my I, you know, I hate using the word brother all the time. My martial arts brothers is like. You have no clue what you're fantasizing about. You do not want this. This is, you know, because because I'm, you know, especially after, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the lawsuit to come through. You know, all the stuff that's going to assumed was going to mess up my life. Um, so my the place where I normally did my psychological healing wasn't working for me. So I started writing, and yeah, and originally I had no real intention to publish it. I I figured. Um, it would be my makamono, my densho. You know, when I actually raised a, a jujitsu student black belt, I would give them that. And that would be all the stuff that you really can't bring out in class. Um, but when I got done with the first draft, I sent it to a couple of friends, you know, just to kind of get a, a check. And one of them was Chris Wilder. And Chris sent it to the publisher. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, it was supposed to be, a, you know, it was just a, a private little thing for me and it's like and chris goes yeah i got it it was on my email i was talking to my publisher when it came in let's just send it on to him i hope you don't mind wow yeah that's that's a really good friend or a really bad one either way yeah it's it's changed my life um for better or worse i don't know okay so i know you you're, you're big into books and you're big into reading and you know, as a writer obviously you have to absorb maybe 200 books for every one you produce 
Um, but you, you actually tried to, to get me to describe my top 10 books every martial artist should read earlier. And I went with Meditations on Violence and Kaya's uh, Fear of the Mind Killer. And of course, I have others, but I'd be very curious to hear what yours are. I, um, I thought about this, and I, I don't know if I can throw it out that way. Um, okay. Because within martial arts, there's some, uh, you know, every, every different martial art has its own canon. And there, there are some little gems in like for, for years, and it still is. My favorite judo book was by getting Bartlett in the UK called Judo and Self-Defense. And it was it was basically set up as this hundred lessons to get to black belt. It was it was back when there there was almost no organization. It's so old um, that it was basically a book on how to set up a club in the UK to become a judo guy. Um, but even when I was on the team, whenever I was having trouble with the technique, I would look in there and he would have this little thing points to watch in connection with this throw, and it would almost exactly whatever problem I was having. It, it was wow. just. So it's, it's one of those, um, the, in the self-defense world, I, in, in the U S at least everyone should read Andrew Bronca's law of self-defense. Um, it breaks law it up like and self-defense. The, okay. Yeah. The, the law of self-defense it's, um, Kai is on my list cause it's about how to teach students. There's, there's one conversation I want to have with her, um, because, uh, um, one, one of the, and we've, we've kind of had it online, but I, I think we, we really need to talk because one of her um, things is that, that fear is more limiting than rules. And most of the people that I work with, fear is our primary motivator. It's not an enemy. It's a friend. It's something that we right. use. So that, that's a conversation because one of the things she says in there is super powerful is we, you have to change your students' relationships with failure. Yeah. You know. Right, make failure challenges where you learn stuff. I also feel that the second step is you have to change the relationship to fear. Yeah, it reminds me of Gavin De Becker's Gift of Fear, which yeah. would probably make my top ten. Yeah, it's um, yes, I, I really like Gavin. I I like everything except the last chapter. But um, if I if I'd saw my mom shot, I probably would have similar uh, attitudes. So um, I, I have my list of four books everyone should read, martial artists or not. Okay. Uh, so that's um, The Richest Man in Babylon. Uh, right, yeah. Okay, like, like a lot of kids who's raised poor, I have this really fucked up relationship with money and how money – that's the best book I've seen on how money actually works and what it really is. Um, the uh, Lakin's How to Get Control of Your Time and Your Life – is the first it's the time management book that all their time management books are based on okay um how to win friends and influence people is just everyone should read that everyone should have read that um, yeah i have it on my shelf and i have read it um i don't know it didn't didn't really chime with me but <laughs> maybe i just have no no hope to win friends or influence anyone. Well, it's, it, even, even if you don't want to do it, it still shows the mechanism. Sure. And, and it's very, very powerful on the mechanism. And the other one, it, it, really unfortunate title, but it's called Think and Grow Rich. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of it. And, and that one, everyone that has followed the, the pattern in there has become incredibly successful. 
however they measure it. So, yeah. Okay, so actually, there's there's quite a lot on there about sort of time management and money. Yeah. Um, so just if you don't mind, tell us about it. So how do you actually make a living? Um, let's see. For a while, um, I was making a living by being a jail guard. Um, then I was making a living by being a contractor in Iraq. And then I was doing it by seminars and books. And that, that was the weirdest because that's the first time I've not been in sworn service in, right. in my adult life. That's that a hard way to do it. And that was – and, and no, and it was scary. It was one of those I'm betting my family's welfare on whether or not I can pull this off. Right. And, uh, and that worked. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a pension waiting for me uh, since I left the sheriff's office. And I decided to draw on it started this year which since COVID would have sunk the seminar business, yeah. the, the timing was perfect. So I, I did 10 years on just writing and teaching. So I feel confident that, that I know how that works. Yeah. And now it's, it's a good solid base. Yeah. Now it's pension and writing. Okay. So you're actually making a living from your books. That's excellent. So mm. what is the next book? Almost. Uh, um, the one I'm working, I'm in editing process and, and you know how much I hate editing. Yes. Uh, and I, I've been talking about this. So this. The first draft of this has been done for almost two years now. Um, but it's a, uh, I'm calling it glossary is the working title, but it's basically just a bunch of words and concept that made life way easier to understand. Okay. Uh, it's so, uh, their words concepts, but they're also tools. So like reframing, um, once you realize that you can, you don't necessarily have to answer the question. If you can change the question, I don't have to solve yeah, the you're problem. Quite good at that. problem. So, right. So reframe it. Um, the, so reframing affordances, once I understood affordances, a whole bunch of things clicked into place that, that, my ability to do something with something is controlled by how I see it. If I can change how I see it, I can change my ability to use it. Um, empiricism. It's, uh, and I, and in some of these, I, I found the word after, cause I'd had this one, one of my best professors at college said, if I don't, I don't care what you think. I don't care what's going on in your head. If it's not observable, it's not real. Um, I only measure behaviors. And it's like, and that's been incredibly powerful for me. Um, yeah, and, and particularly in, in the self-defense world, that's super important. The, the motivations of the person are important up to the moment that the fight begins because that helps you avoid it. But once it starts, yeah, yeah it's you, you. You have to deal with the physical reality of their behavior, not not your idea about how they might behave. Well, and even before the buildup, most of the time what people say, the reason that they're mad is not the reason they're mad. Um, oh, sure. Right. But if you can discern the real reason they're mad, you can solve that and they won't even know it. And it's a form of reframing. Hmm. Now, okay. The, the buildup, we, we sort of stumbled onto the topic of the buildup to violence. Mm -hmm. And, um, actually one of, um, I have a Patreon that goes that supports this podcast, and one of the patrons asked me to ask you um, mm -hmm. 
about the effect of culture on the build-up to violence and the exact form that the eventual violence may take. Um, go ahead. It, well, it's, it's <clears throat> there's there's a lot of cultural things that goes into it, and um, one, one of the models I use is social and asocial violence, right? Social violence, they're dealing with you as a person. Asocial violence, they're dealing with you as a resource or a toy. Um, so one of the cultural things is if you've been raised that all people are people, your tendency is to be more social. Your, your violence, when you do use is for communication, you're trying to teach them a lesson and control their behavior. Um, when you've been trained or raised, and this, this was actually the default for most of history that the, the idea that all people are people is fairly new, but if you've been raised that people that you aren't related to aren't real people then you can use a much higher level of force with a lot less emotional repercussions and with a lot less hesitation. So that's one of the things that's uh, one of the studies I ran into said that the child soldiers don't have PTSD um, oh, wow. until because they, they aren't killing people. They're killing other members of tribes that don't belong to them. But when they get adopted and re-socialized, they get the PTSD retroactively. Oh my God, that's so, so horrific. It, it's horrific, but it's, it's one of those, you can, you can, so socially, you can raise a kid to believe almost anything you can imagine about violence in a certain context. You can teach them that if it, if it doesn't have an element of violence, it's not real love. And, and you see that all the time. So, so that's, that's part of it. Um, the other part is that, and, and this is two ways, in a stable, you know, law and order society, um, we, we have expectations that, that violence is not going to happen. When that goes away, violence becomes a natural way to solve problems. It's always been a natural way to solve problems. Sure. Um, we, we don't realize how artificial our society is. And artificial doesn't mean bad in this context. Um, most, most of the things we think of as good are um, unnatural because the natural default is lazy. Um, sure. You know, in a natural way. Yeah, might make sure right. is natural, but it's yeah. horrible and disgusting and stupid. Right. But it's still natural. Right. Um, rape, rape is natural, but it's abhorrent and you know should never happen. But it's natural. Yeah. People it, who are not who are not socialized not to do it will end up doing it, and it's it's prevalent in every culture. One of the things that in in Kaya's book is consent is super important, but consent doesn't exist in nature. It's a human construct. And it's, it's a good human construct. I like it. Um, but so that, so within that we have a tendency and this, this goes into, um, you know, violence for writers, that idea. Um, we live in a very rarefied artificial bubble and it becomes really weird when we start extrapolating that to other cultures, other eras. Um, so, so the social thing there is, is very, very cultural. Um, there tend to be similar steps um, with, within the group because you don't, you don't want to kill people within your own group. You don't want to weaken them and you don't, you don't want to weaken your group and you don't want them so pissed off that they leave. So there tends to be a ritual combat within groups that's not um, lethal. Um, but there's a huge argument that the reason for the lethal dueling in 
in the uh, 17th centuries and 18th century in Europe was because there were just too many sons to divide the land. And they, okay. they need to kill off a lot of the nobility or else there'd be too many petty nobles running around. Okay. Um, that's an interesting theory. Uh, where did that come from? Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. That up. I, I read a lot of books. I, I want to say it was Baylor's book on the duel, which I don't know if it's okay. any good or historically accurate, but it's super fun. But I, I read a lot of books about the same time about the same subject. So it's – but I think there was uh, one thing, 10% a year were dying, and that's why yeah, they I started mean, it was, outlying it. But, but, well, no, I mean, okay, the, the duel has been – the private duel has been illegal pretty much forever. Mm-hmm. The, um, the kind of the public duel, like a judicial combat type duel – um, was legal in most pl- parts of Europe in some form or another until about the middle of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even that became outlawed. And one of the reasons, okay, the, the duelists were always of the upper classes. Mm-hmm. And although it was illegal, it was tolerated. And even the last duel fought in Scotland mm-hmm. um, in the 19th century the same judge who that morning had sent a little girl to Australia for, I think, seven years for shoplifting, pardoned or acquitted the surviving duelist because it was understood that it was a duel between gentlemen and that's okay. Even though it's technically murder, he, he got off. Privilege. Right? So, yeah, so, so, it's, so it's, it's been illegal for most, in most of Europe, from, but it's always been sort of tolerated and the consequences haven't. No, the consequences have been there, but not applied. But sometimes it's like a, okay, you're banished from the city for a year or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's a really strange social phenomenon. I, is it strange, or does it just look strange from our point of view? Ah, oh, well, I mean, strangeness is a subjective value judgment. So yeah, from our point of view, certainly. Of course, if you're in the middle of it, it, well, it's, it feels I mean, natural and normal. I, I, I try to think the historical perspective. Has there been dueling longer than there's been not dueling? Um, there's been dueling a lot longer. Yeah. 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 So, so we're the ones that are weird. <laughs> okay. Historically speaking, I suppose you're right. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. So, all right. This, this is a question I ask everyone, and I'll be very curious to see how you respond. So. What is the best idea you haven't acted on? <laughs> I know if it's the best, uh, but I get these ideas every so often. And one of those is, are you familiar with Snickers bars? Of course, yep. Okay, so take out the peanuts, substitute coffee beans, and sell them on college campuses. Oh, my God, you said are a genius. Right? So Yeah. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea how to, how to act on that, but I think that would do great. So, and. <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. Well, and the other weird idea I had is I want an app called I Sacrifice. And so you, so you get out your phone, you plug in the app, and then you type in what you want. Like, I want good traffic to go to work. And then you decide what, what you're going to sacrifice and how you're going to do it. So it's like, I want good traffic for work, and I'm going to sacrifice a pigeon with a stone knife. 
and the app sacrifices the pigeon and plays mysterious music and says the gods will grant your wish if that's what they want. Okay. I, I think people wow. would obsessively play with this app. I think they absolutely would. I think both of those are totally doable. Right. I just don't know how, so. Okay. Well, if anybody listening to this knows how, please do get in touch. And um, Yeah. Because we could make millions, sir. And wouldn't that well, be fun? We could make millions. Like I said, someone else is doing so, all so, so, I just get weird yeah, ideas so, sometimes. Yeah, so in the app, there's like lots of different ways to sacrifice different things. Yeah. So like okay. Well now um, what would be a human sacrifice where you can sacrifice your own Facebook profile. Oh wow. And it would really go. Right? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, I, I have been trying to get rid of my Facebook profile since forever. And every time I'm just about to delete it, some critical work thing comes up that yeah. I could only do with a Facebook profile. And I'm like, fuck, I was right. so close. I, I planned when I retired, which would be when I got back from the sailboat, to throw a big party and delete it. Um, but we now have the, the Kieran training group on there and we do our chats and it's right. like, fuck. Well, okay. Yeah, we had a we have a Facebook group for my online students, mm -hmm. and I've now started a Discord um, server thing instead, and that is I will actually go to that every day and like chat to people or, or you know people ask questions about training or swords or whatever, and I and it's it's fine because it isn't Facebook, so it doesn't have all of that stuff mm -hmm. to kind of suck you into ghastly you know, time sucks and, and, you know, angst and misery and adverts and, oh God. If you want to, my, my attitude right now, and this has been really helpful. Um, I'm, I'm now looking at Facebook is, oh my God, this is monkeys flinging poo. <laughs> that is super helpful. <laughs> Everything um, just shifts into perspective. In fact, the only thing I'm on Facebook for at the moment is is Maya has a Maya Soderholm has a, a kind of private Facebook group discussing martial arts things, yeah. and um, so I'm I go to that, and but you know people are people are using like companies that I I bought a uh, a course to help me be better at my self publishing side of things, and their entire kind of support structure is on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, that's, that's, it's kind of lazy and unfair. Like, you know, you, if you sell somebody something, you should be there to kind of help them solve problems with it. If things come up. Yeah. Right. And the one time I, you know, some bit of the course wasn't working properly. So I sent their support email, uh, a support request I was told, why don't you ask it on the Facebook group? Like, I don't want to know what other students and your customers think about solving this problem. I want you to solve this problem for me. Yeah. Because it's, I've just paid you like $500. <laughs> you know, I'm entitled to a little bit of actual support, I would have thought. But no, it's like, just chuck it all onto Facebook and, you know, let the poo flinging monkeys help each other. It's like, that, that to me is not, not yeah. It leaves a bad taste. But the Discord app's great. Everything about Facebook leaves a bad taste for me. It's yeah. the the number of my friends that evidently, if they're hiding behind keyboards, are genocidal monsters. I don't know. 
<laughs> scary, isn't it? And just think of it as, as founding DNA. It was it was created as an app for college boys to rate girls on their hotness. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think I think that has kind of you know tainted its growth ever since. Yeah, maybe it's just. Yeah, so much about people is about getting excited and angry and afraid right now. It just is so emotional. Well, I mean, it's the business model, right? Mm-hmm. They, they sell advertising. That's how they make their money. And so they, and getting you angry keeps your attention, making you happy. You get happy and then you go away. Yeah, right? absolutely. So there's a wonderful book on it uh, by Jaron Lanier called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Which is, you know, it's it's well worth a, a look because it kind of lays out the fundamental problems Facebook and Twitter and what have you. It's actually it's why I switched from YouTube to Vimeo mm-hmm. um, because with YouTube it's free, and so I am providing content to suck people onto YouTube so that YouTube can serve up ads to sell people stuff. Yeah, right. It, it's Whereas amazing. On Vimeo, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it works, but on Vimeo. I pay Vimeo for the privilege of hosting my videos. So I am the customer. Mm-hmm. And when I bring Vimeo doesn't care whether I bring people onto my videos or not, yeah. because that's not what they're getting paid to do. They're getting paid to provide a really good video hosting service. And that's what they do. Right. So I'm much happier. Product. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and with things like that, I would much rather be, be the customer. Okay. Um, we are running a little over time. Uh, thank you for As, your that happens, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, so let me just like wrap things up by asking if there's anything you would like to suggest to or ask of the listeners. It, the same thing I always say, you know, get off your ass and actually do stuff. It's, you know, go play, play hard, live hard. That's, I, I think that's my generic advice. Except for, you know, okay. shoot the one on the left, hit the one on the right and keep moving which is my other chair. <laughs> okay. Get off your ass and actually do stuff. I think that's an excellent place to finish. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Rory. That was great. It's good talking to you again. It's been a long time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Rory Miller. As you can tell from the tone of the interview, you can, I certainly did. If you go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, you'll get the episode show notes and also a chance to download a free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And there is a Rory connection there because in that book, I reproduce with his permission uh, an entire table of interesting things from his fantastic book meditations on violence that's actually how we first properly interacted is when i contacted him to get permission to use that table by all means go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the show notes and that book while i have you dashing about the internet you may also want to go along to go.guywindsor.net for your free courses on how to stay healthy and get started in swordsmanship So joint care, breathing, meditation, and longsword and rapier. Speaking of free, this podcast is, of course, entirely free, but it's not cheap. 
So it costs quite a bit of money to produce it to the standard it's at, and I would like to put more money into getting it produced to a higher standard. I am working on getting some better recording equipment and getting some help with the editing. So if you'd like to help with that, um, please go to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and join our growing legion of avid sword guy fans. Patrons get basically first dibs on anything to do with the podcast, including suggesting questions for guests, asking follow-up questions for guests, and asking me anything they want, and I record it and I stick it on the Patreon for them. So, if that sounds like your sort of thing, patreon.com forward slash the sword guy is the place to go. Thank you to all of my existing patrons. You are keeping the lights on, and I really appreciate it. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Elena Muzarina. Um, we had a little chat at the beginning of the show before I recorded it, so I think I've got her surname more or less correctly pronounced. We have a very interesting chat about swordsmanship in Russia, how she trains for tournaments. You may have heard of her because she's won a bunch of stuff, and we go into that in some depth and detail in our conversation next week. So to avoid missing out, by all means, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you'd like to rate it or review it, that would be awesome. And without further ado, I will see you next week. Cheerio.